Sentire media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 42, An Urban Pope and an Imperial Soap Opera. In the last episode, we witnessed the sort of papacy of Desiderius of Monte Cassino. I say sort of because he actually spent more time trying to sneak away from his post than actually being Pope. The Countess Matilda of Canossa, ruler of a good part of northern Italy when Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV wasn't taking it out from under her feet, kept having to try and drag Desiderius back to his job. In the end, he managed to get her to leave him in peace by dying. There is an Italian expression that says, Morto un papa, se ne fa un altro. Its figurative meaning is that no one is irreplaceable. You can always find a replacement, and another will be coming along shortly. The literal translation is, once a pope has died, you make another one. So, that's what the church leaders in the reform group now needed to do. Remember that there was still an anti-pope, Clement III, hanging around in Rome. The choice fell on a man that Pope Gregory VII had nominated as one of his possible successors the Frenchman Odo of Laguerie, in the county of Champagne, Bishop of Ostia. The election came about after six-month interregnum. It took place in Terracina, since Rome was too dangerous. As well as the cardinals, the envoys of Matilda were also present and gave her approval. The new pope took the name of Urban II, He was a strong believer in the ongoing reform and a highly pious man who felt that the church hierarchy should also follow the rules of monastic life. Something that the church hierarchy were not at all pleased about. One source mentions that he even refused to take advantage of the wealth of the position and continued to live in poverty, relying on donations from citizens. So, we've got the Pope business sorted out for now. We'll leave Urban there. He'll be very busy soon. We won't leave him in Rome, though. He won't get there until about 1093. For the moment, we need to follow our friend Matilda for a bit. She was feeling pretty lonely. After the failure of her marriage and the loss of her mother, Beatrice, Pope Gregory had become her only friend. Gregory himself had assigned Anselm of Lucca to Matilda as a confessor, counsellor and general confidant. But he died shortly after the Pope. Matilda felt that she could not face Emperor Henry IV alone, so she went looking for a hubby to give her a hand. While she was at it, the Countess, now in her early forties, thought she might get herself a toy boy. Now, you will have all heard the proverb that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In this case, we could say that the enemy of my enemy is my toy boy husband. Among the enemies of the emperor were the Swabians, and the heir in this case was Welf, that's right, Welf II, son of 
Welf I, Duke of Bavaria. Now, you may or may not remember that Matilda's first husband had been known as Godfrey the Hunchback and was consequently not the most attractive of guys. Perhaps this time she could get herself a sexy young trophy husband to keep her company in her middle age. Well, Welf was known as Welf the Fat, so no California dream man there. Actually, he is known in Italian as Guelfo il Pingue, which is a Latin word meaning fat, that could be one of the possible origins of the word penguin. So we could also call him Welf the Penguin. He was all of 17 years old, and they were married, and they became quite a scandal in European high society. It was clearly a marriage of political convenience. One of Matilda's biographers, Paolo Golinelli, calls it a medieval joint venture. They would eventually go their own separate ways by 1095. Meanwhile, they were ready to face Henry together, and he, once he had dealt with the Saxons again, was ready to deal with them. His first move was to make his way down to an allied city, Verona, where he arrived on the 10th of April, 1090. From there, he laid siege to the nearby Mantua, where Matilda and Welf, the penguin, had gone to wait for him. Now, the free citizens of Mantua had been chafing under the rule of the Canossa for some time, and Matilda and Welf knew that they needed to gain the favour of the citizens if they wanted to hold out against the siege. They made a series of concessions to the autonomy of the city, but it was too little, too late. Thanks in part to the sabotaging activities of the Mantuans, the city fell in 1091. Henry entered the city, and later it was he who rewarded the citizens with greater autonomy. Matilda and her tubby-hubby penguin retreated to the Apennine fortresses of the Canossa. Henry spent the winter in the Po Valley. At a certain point, news reports reached Matilda that Henry had ventured across the Po River with a small number of soldiers, and was therefore vulnerable. She set out immediately with her troops, but she was betrayed by one of her captains, Hugo del Manso, and she found a considerably larger force than expected waiting for her. She was defeated once again and retreated to the hills. After the winter, Henry took the offensive again and took hold of the areas of Bologna and Modena. This was Matilda's darkest hour. A meeting was held at the castle of Carpineti to consider offering peace terms to Henry, when a monk, a hermit monk from the small Apennine village of Marola, spoke up. I wasn't able to find what he actually said, but evidently it was convincing enough to persuade everyone to continue with the fight. Henry, meanwhile, had made his way to the city of Reggio Emilia and let slip that he was proceeding on along the ancient Roman Via Emilia towards Parma. This was fake news, and he was really headed straight for Matilda's strongholds in the Apennines. She was not fooled, and he found her ready. Now, I'm not a military historian, 
I'm not really a historian and I don't even actually have a degree in history. But anyway, military history teaches us that people who are fighting in familiar terrain against an invader who is unfamiliar with the terrain have a great advantage. If you add the hilly landscape and impressive series of fortresses, it meant that the emperor was in for a tough time. The continued hit-and-run attacks of Matilda's forces ground down Henry's troops. In the only real major battle, in an uninhabited valley that came to be known as Madonna della Battaglia, the Madonna of the Battle, it seemed that Matilda's forces were saved thanks to the miraculous intervention of a fixed characteristic of local weather, the fog. I personally am not a big fan of the fog at all. It's hell to drive in. But anyway, it seems that an abbot, another Giovanni, brought the men of the cloth together and did some big-time, hardcore, heavy-duty praying. As a result, just like in one of the best King Arthur films ever made, in my opinion, Excalibur, a thick fog fell which confused the imperial forces even more, thus giving Matilda's smaller force a great victory. She had a statue erected in the location, and after her death, a church was built. It was destroyed twice over the centuries, and almost completely rebuilt in 1724, and stands there to this day. The battle came to be known as the Battle of Bianello, due to the nearby castle of that name, or Battaglia della Nebbia, the Battle of the Fog. It seems that now the tide was really turning. The cities of Milan, Cremona, Lodi and Piacenza all declared for Matilda, meaning that Henry was now almost completely surrounded. At this point, he made his way back up to Germany. Matilda now moved in for the kill targeting not the emperor himself, but his son Conrad. Henry loved his son and had thought for a long time of making him king of Italy, as well as king of Germany, which he had already done, to prepare the young man for his future career. That is when Matilda made her move. She managed to get in touch with Conrad and convince him that only she and her allies could really offer him the crown of the kingdom of Italy. Any title that his father could offer him over the northern part of the peninsula would have been an empty one, because he did not have full control there. The young man, who lived under the shadow of his father, could not resist the temptation of wielding real power. So it was that in the year 1093, Conrad, son of Henry IV, Holy Roman Emperor, was crowned King of Italy by Pope Urban II in Monza with the Iron Crown the Lombards. After being one of the agents of his humiliation at Canossa, after being a thorn in his side for so many years, the Countess Matilda had now taken Henry's son. It was a devastating blow to the Emperor, soon followed by another. His second wife, the Russian princess Prixadis, also abandoned him to join her stepson in Italy before heading back to Russia. Before doing so, she engaged in a bitter PR battle with her estranged husband, in which she accused him of forcing her to take part in orgies against her will. Later accounts also spoke of Henry being part of a sect and forcing his wife 
to take part in black masses. He, in turn, accused her of being a prostitute and having an affair with her stepson Conrad, an affair which, in Henry's view, was proven by her escape to the new king of Italy. Other accounts state that Henry had offered Praxedis to his son, and he had refused, thus sparking his rebellion. The courts of Europe were loving the gossip. It was a real example of a great imperial soap opera, and the Pope was making sure that everyone knew about it. All you needed was some old abuela to come in and declare that somebody was somebody else's son who they'd really been going out with as lovers or something like that, and it would have been perfect. Meanwhile, young Conrad was starting to get the very nasty feeling that he had been duped, that all the wealth and power he had been tempted with were not quite as expected. Indeed, he had no power or wealth at all. He was wandering around as a guest, but had no army, no titles, nor lands. To try and keep him happy, in the year 1095, Urban II crowned him Holy Roman Emperor. But that was really just another empty title. The next step was to try and get him a little cash, which in the Middle Ages was done by arranging a marriage. The damsel chosen in this case was Maximilia, the daughter of Roger of Sicily, who supposedly came with a considerable dowry. She didn't. So where before we had a poor puppet king and emperor, now we had a poor puppet couple. They were assigned to a small castle in Borgo San Donnino, the present-day city of Fidenza, in the Emilia area, where Matilda could keep an eye on them. There, Conrad lived out the rest of his short life. Indeed, he died in the year 1101, forgotten and unimportant, no doubt resenting his father and the Countess Matilda, who had fooled him along with her ally, Pope Urban II. Speaking of whom. He had finally managed to get into Rome in 1093, not by force but by trickery. He had been operating around southern Italy, trying to get the Normans united behind him in the old alliance after the death of the unifying figure of Robert Guiscard. The rivalry was mainly between the son of Robert, Roger, and the brother of Robert, also confusingly called Roger, ruler of Sicily. Who at this point was completing the conquest of the island, which had started in 1061 by defeating the last pockets of Arab resistance, except for the ones in the centre of the island, which continued on. Things were further complicated by the presence of another of the Giscard sons, Beaumont, who we spoke about in the last episode when he commanded the Norman fleet that fought against the Byzantines in Illyria. Urban had a job in mind for young Beaumont, that had something to do with the big plans he was making. Plans that would not only sort out Beaumont's employment status, but would also help the Pope get the upper hand in the struggle against Emperor Henry the Fourth, on a whole other level, bringing unprecedented prestige to the papacy. In the year 1095. Those big plans were about to come to fruition. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. 
Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon donors, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Roberta, Sean and Jeff, the Matilda Di Conossa and Mazzini level, Benjamin, the Galileo Galilei and Margarita Hack level, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, Caitlin, Ben, Dean, Ignazio, and Silene. And finally, to our top level, Maria Montessori, a Dante Alighieri level, Sen. Thanks again to them and all of you. If you have a sec, please leave a review of the podcast. You can also write in hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, look at our timelines and maps to help you navigate our country's complicated history. Once again, thanks very much. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.